Uh, I'll invite you to take your Bibles if you uh, have them with you and turn to Exodus chapter 3. I'd like to run through a couple of examples today. Last week was Mother's Day, and within the scope of our Mother's Day sermon, we uh, spent our time talking about God's design and the nature of God as it relates to mothers and how God has uh, designed a certain um, a, a certain societal impact that mothers are going to have and how important mothers are to society. And of course, we contrasted that with what we see in our society today as it relates to uh, the denigration of motherhood uh, and the elevation through um, the, the um, um, poison pill of feminism, uh, the, the, the denigration of women, the denigration of their role within the home, the denigration of their role within the family, the, 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 the de-emphasis of the importance of raising up the next generation. And as we have seen all of this, uh, I, I hope it brought you to a place where you recognized and appreciated the nature of God's design so that uh, every one of us, whether male or female, whether mother or not mother, uh, could uh, consider the, the doctrines and the, the teachings of scripture as it relates to motherhood and say, yes, motherhood is absolutely essential to our society, to our culture, to our family, of course, and to the church as we went and we saw that motherhood is uh, the, the essential foundation by which the next generation of the church is ushered into itself. And so motherhood is absolutely essential. There was a, a question that came up this week uh, more broadly as it related to this, though. So we see this concept of design, right? And we recognize uh, that God has designed motherhood and that God has designed it to function in this way. And that as we align with, with that design, we recognize and we appreciate motherhood for what it is. And then as we think more broadly about this concept of design, and we think about any other number of elements of design, we think of design as it relates to fatherhood. We think of design as it relates to femininity and masculinity. We think of design as it relates to being a husband, a design as it relates to a wife. And as, as we consider all these elements of design, um, we recognize that the Bible has something to say about them. The Bible has something to say about pastors, about, um, uh, about evangelists, about um, any number of authorities, about employees, about employers, about governments, and about citizens. So that as we recognize each element of design, we can say, yes, I understand and can appreciate God's design in this thing. But just because we can understand and appreciate it, doesn't necessarily mean that we love it and embrace it. Just because you can understand and appreciate the role that you might have as a father or as a mother, it doesn't necessarily mean that you embrace it and love it, that, that, you, <clears throat> um, uh, that, that you have within your heart the compulsion to, to, to give yourself wholly to it in the way that, that perhaps the Bible says you should. Same with the husband and the wife. Uh, we, we've talked about this any number of times as it relates to wives and submission and husbands and love and leadership. It's, it's not that difficult when you read the text to acknowledge that the wife is supposed to submit to the husband as unto the Lord. For the husband to acknowledge that he's supposed to give his life to his wife as we see the example of Christ and his church. It's not that difficult to acknowledge, but but how is it that we embrace this? How is it that we, 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 we give ourselves wholly to it? How does it fill our hearts so that we don't uh, begrudgingly or longingly 
uh, look at other things and and say, wow, you know, this is who, this is what I really like, but I'm 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 having to be a husband. I'm having to be a father. Um, this this there's that there's that that desire over there for um, that next phase of life or or for that next thing. And maybe it's not a husband thing. Maybe it's not a father thing. Maybe it's the the, the career path you're on, and the fact that you are having to submit to a employer and you may not like that employer, or maybe it's even our country and our government and our leaders, and, and we recognize that we are where we are, and we recognize the call to submit to our boss, to submit to our, our, our civil authorities, and yet simultaneously, um, we don't embrace that. We do so begrudgingly, or we do so with this mind that says, well, I'm going to do this for now because I have to, but I don't want to, and I'm not interested in it. How do we take that next step? to where we thrive where we are, rather than always looking for that next thing, rather than always uh, looking around the corner for what could be next. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. Not every element of God's design aligns well with my will, my desires, or may I say this as well, not even necessarily with my skill set. When I became pastor of Legacy Baptist Church, I was very confused. Um, there was, it was a very bumpy road at the beginning first two years was very difficult. Um, there was a lot of conflict, uh, very difficult transitioning to my vision. I didn't even know fully what it was. Um, I was young um, and I had these desires, but, but I, I, I didn't have any experience. I was hoping that that gap would be filled with the patience of uh, the people of the church, and, and yet the people of the church weren't quite, quite ready for me. Um, and that gap wasn't filled, and I ended up kind of um, having to figure it out on my own while simultaneously, um, to some degree or another, alienating those who were in the church uh, by, my, my, um, by the degree to which I was, I was not refined my, uh, as a minister, uh, the, the extent to which I had to do the learning on the job, uh, the way in which things were, had to be said or were being said, um, the manner of my preaching, uh, the the style of my ministry, all of this was 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 in a process of growth, was in a process of transition, was in a process of me learning how to make these things happen and learning of myself enough to understand how I could make this happen. And all of that uh, was very, very difficult. And then, uh, as for many of you, as you know, when the church um, kind of had its, its uh, well, the, 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 the seminal change, um, where there were some people coming and some people going, and, and the, the nature of the church uh, was changed fundamentally. Uh, that brought me to a place where I had to come to grips with who I was as a minister and where I was going and whether or not I was called and, uh, and called to Buffalo and called to Legacy and all of these various things. And as I went through that process, one of the things that I was so confused is why God would put a minister like me with my particular skill set my particular vision and my particular abilities and lack of abilities in a environment such as this, uh, in a, a small church, uh, a rural church, um, all of those elements within the scope of, of the ministry here at Legacy Baptist Church. And I had to come to grips with who I was, my skill set, my desires, my will, and then the calling that God had placed upon my life. And the question is, at what point 
can we go from just coming to grips with it and living with, with the situation you have uh, in, in contrast to the abilities that you have and then to th truly thrive in it. See, for some of you, you may not understand this because you've mo the majority of the, the major situations in your life, you've not had that conflict. Maybe your skill set has met your calling perfectly and you've transitioned beautifully and you've had uh, easy transitions and some of that um, perhaps by, by a matter of, of um, just the way God has led, some of that might be by wisdom. So in other words, you listened to people, you did things in a manner that was a little bit more careful, uh, you, you um, um, transitioned by means of a great deal of counsel and a great deal of care, and so the transitions were easy, and you always had that, that meshing. But that doesn't always happen, does it? There's any number of times in our lives where we're placed into a situation where things are not as we would expect them to be, where for one reason or another, we are, we are in a calling and we are in a situation, and yet it's not what we would choose. And we see God's design in it, and we know God's will is in it. And the question is, now that we have God's design and God's will, and we can appreciate that, do we just have to appreciate God's design and God's will and then muddle through for the rest of our lives, knowing that we're in God's will and knowing that we're aligned with God's design, but not really being where we want to be or, or, or where we think we should be? Or can we find that place where we are thriving, where we have embraced the role that God has put us into and where through that we are able to find absolute contentment and, and, and that is possible. And so that's the question today. How do we get from an appreciation for God's design, an appreciation for God's calling on our lives and a recognition that we are where God wants us to be to transitioning our hearts to where we say, okay, now that I know that, I'm going to thrive in it. I'm going to embrace it. I am going to make it my all. I see God's design. I wholly acknowledge and I admit to the wisdom of God's design and God's plan and God's way. How do I go from seeing it? How do I go from acknowledging it to thriving in it and embracing it? And I'd like to look at three different examples today from the scriptures. I asked you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to begin with Moses. Moses will be um, the first, and then we're going to talk about David, and then we're going to talk about uh, Saul of Tarsus, Paul. And particularly with David and with Saul, we're going to, uh, we're going to see the transition to a response. Uh, the response with Moses uh, is, is a little bit more gradual over time. And yet what we see is we see this man named Moses. And Moses, of course, um, you recall the account uh, that at a, as a baby he was um, sent down the river lest he be killed because he was a male in Egypt. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, picks him up, and decides to raise him as her own. She gives him the name Moses. Uh, it turns out that Moses' mother gets to wean him and, and care for him for a manner of years. When Moses comes, to, uh, comes of age, uh, as, as he um, is out looking at the slaves there of the Israelites, him, of course, not among those slaves because he is in the house of Pharaoh, uh, he gets in his mind, I'm going to uh, interp uh, interpret a little bit here, that he is going to be the deliverer for the nation of Israel. There's no doubt that his parents, having weaned him and, and raised him in those younger years, had taught him of the nature of Israel, of the nature of God's promises to Israel. And so he kills an Egyptian, and he seeks to hide it. 
but the thing is known and he ends up having to run for his life out of Egypt lest Pharaoh kill him. The, the nation of Israel did not get behind him when he killed the Egyptian. Uh, rather, they scorned him and more or less rejected him. So he ends up in the house of a man named Jethro, a priest of Midian in the land of Midian. There he gets married and he is tending to the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. And that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 3 verse 1. The Bible says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off the shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the house of the Egyptians, and to bring them up uh, out of that land into a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh? And then I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. And of course, God responds there in verse 12, certainly I will be with thee. So Moses is given a calling. And as he's given this calling, he immediately says, who am I that I should do this thing? I am not, uh, the, I'm, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not the kind of man. I'm not what you need. I'm not equipped. I'm not, I'm not right for this job. And so he immediately questions God. And God tells him, I'll be with you. And verse 13, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you. And they shall say, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? So the first one being, God, who am I? And God says, Well, don't worry about who you are. I'll be with you. And then the second question, Who are you? Who are you? And God responds in verse 14, I am that I am. So Moses says, who am I? And God says, it doesn't matter who you are. It only matters who I am. And then the question number two, well then, okay, if it only matters who you are, God, then who are you? And God says, I am that I am. He says, I am the ever existing one. I am the one who is from the beginning. I am the, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am everything. And from that point, God continues to instruct uh, Moses about what is going to happen, about how, he, how the Pharaoh is not going to let them out of Egypt, how God is going to plague Pharaoh um, and bring about the circumstances by which not only will Israel leave, but Israel will spoil the Egyptians and then leave the land. We continue into chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Moses asks a third question or a third reply. 
He says in verse 1, Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord responds and says, that's not, your, that's not your problem. That's not your responsibility. He says, what is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod. And so a God tells Moses to cast the rod on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And then he tells him to pick it up and it becomes a rod in his hand again. Moses, uh, God tells Moses to put his hand into his bosom and he pulls out his hand and it's leprous. And then he puts it back in and he pulls it out again and it's, it's, it's recovered. So God says, it's not about you, it's about me. It doesn't matter. It's not your responsibility to convince anyone. It's just your responsibility to be there, to tell, to do what I tell you to do. And then I'll take care of the rest. And then there's a fourth question in verse 10. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, or a fourth reply, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And the Lord says, Who made man's mouth? In verse 11. Or who maketh the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? God says, I'm the one who decides who speaks and who doesn't, who hears and who doesn't, who sees and who doesn't. Do you really think that I can't help you speak if I want you to speak? If I'm here to call you to speak, do you really do, do, do you not think that I can't, can't help you with this? And of course, in verse 13, Moses then says, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him thou wilt send. He says, Okay, God, I've, I've exhausted my excuses, so go ahead and send, and if you're going to do it by me, that's fine. And God gets upset at this because Moses has not submitted himself truly. And thus, he appoints Aaron to be a part of the process at that time, and Moses uh, loses out on a little something as far as a reward in that time as well. Four questions, four replies, and four answers from God. God, who am I? God says it doesn't matter. God, who are you? I am everything. God, they won't believe me. That's not your job. That's not your responsibility. That's not your problem. Your problem is to do. God, I'm not eloquent. I can't do. You can do if I enable you to do. Now let's transition this to whatever it might be in your life, whether it be motherhood, fatherhood, husbandhood, wifehood, whether it be that job, whether it be as a citizen, whether it be your calling, whether it be as a minister, me as a pastor, where God has made me a pastor, where God has placed you, where you're living right now, um, the, the, the job that you have right now, the amount of income you have right now, whatever it might be, how do I go from recognizing that God has led, recognizing God's design, and by the way, there's so many other things. He hath made them male or female. It's not uncommon growing up, especially among young ladies, when they, when they see certain elements of, of life to say, oh, I wish I was a boy, or oh, I wish I was a girl, or I wish I was the oldest son, child, or I wish I was the youngest child. Uh, your, your station in life, your lot in life. What about these other things we just spoke of? Maybe it's some health difficulty you're going through that's completely outside of your control. Maybe it's the way God has designed you. Maybe it's how tall you are, how short you are. Maybe it's your, your, your teeth. Maybe they're straight. Maybe, uh, or maybe they're not straight. Maybe it's uh, your smile. Maybe it's your eyes are crooked. Maybe it's you have to wear glasses. Maybe you have to wear braces. Maybe um, whatever it might be. 
and you look and you say, well, God, here I am and I'm in this place and it's a place that you've placed me and it's, it's what you've given me. And, and what do I do with that? What do you do with that? You say, okay, God, well, I guess I have to live with it. Well, do you just have to live with it? But if you walk through these ideas that, that God presented to Moses, Moses says, who am I? God says, it doesn't matter. Who are you? I'm everything, God says. They won't believe me. That's not your problem, Moses. I'm not eloquent. I, I'm not equipped. Uh, God says, you're equipped if I say you're equipped. Psalm 139 says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. You are what God wanted you to be. Your hair color is what God wanted it to be. Your health is, is, is what God chose it to be. Yes, there are circumstances that are within our control. Those ones, maybe not. Those ones, that, that might be your problem. And maybe you need to eat better. Maybe you need to exercise more. Those sorts of things. But the unchangeables. You have a job. and not a big fan of the job, but it's the one that the Lord has given you. It's the one, it, it's the one that's available. It's the one that you have. God has given me this calling. He's placed me in this church. I am here. He's very clearly put me here. There's no question I'm supposed to be here. God has made you a mother. He's asked you to be a mother. God has made you a father. He's asked you to be a father. God has, has made you to be a wife. He's asked you to be a wife. He's placed you into that position as a wife or as a husband. Yeah, but, but I don't like all that comes along with it. But you're there. Yeah, but I'm not equipped. I'm not equipped to be a good husband. I'm not equipped to be a good wife. I don't have that temperament. I don't have that mentality. I don't have... Um, I don't... Uh, husband, I don't, I don't have that particular sensibility for my wife. Wife, I don't have that particular submission to my husband. Well, did God call you there? Are you there? Can God not equip you to do what he's asked you to do? Can you, can you see God's design and then say, okay, next step, let's thrive in that. And there's, there's a particular part of this. It's not so much about embracing the design or embracing the circumstance. But what do we see from this teaching between Moses and God? It wasn't so much that God was asking Moses to embrace leadership, to embrace the role of the deliverer, to embrace uh, public speaking, to embrace the signs and the wonders and being a prophet before Pharaoh. What was God actually asking Moses to embrace? God was actually asking Moses to embrace him. It wasn't about embracing my circumstances or Moses' circumstances. It isn't about embracing motherhood, embracing fatherhood. It's about embracing, thriving in God's design, uh, God himself. It's about embracing and, and thriving in the God behind the circumstances. And we see this as well in David's life. David spent years, somewhere around four years most likely, running for his life from Saul. He'd been anointed to be the king of Israel, but Saul was the Lord's anointed, as, uh, as we talked about on sun, uh, Tuesday night. Uh, by matter of fact, Saul was the one that was functioning in that capacity. It had not been 
nullified by the fact that David had, had been anointed to be king and Saul was in the position of king. David would not, could not uh, lay a hand to the Lord's anointed without suffering the, con the, the divine consequences of doing so. So David, of course, did not. And so he is running for his life. He is uh, in the land of the Philistines for a time and he is in caves and he is in the wilderness and he's got men that are coming to him who are uh, typically outcasts, vagabonds, exiles. And he's in a very difficult spot. And he's been there for a number of years. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than, I, than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. And so David says, look, I'm going to die if I stay here. I'm going to die if, if the, the, Saul's never going to stop chasing me. I'm, I'm either dead or, I'm, or I, I'm, I've got to run out of the land. And he goes into the land of the Philistines and he ends up in a pretty difficult spot before Achish, king of Gath, because of this choice. And yet we see these circumstances... David did not ask to be made king. He was anointed by Saul to be, or by Samuel to be made king. David was a shepherd out in the field when the prophet Samuel reviewed his brothers and said, the king is not here. Do you have any more sons? And Jesse said, I have one. He's in the field. Possibly around 15 years old. Somewhere around there. And so they bring David and David is anointed king. David didn't ask to kill Goliath. He goes to give provisions to his brother when Goliath defies the armies of the living God. And David, in a fit of uh, righteous indignation, offers to be the one to do, to stand in that gap, to be the one to do what no one else would do. And he does it. And Saul made him his general. Saul brought him into his court to play before him. David didn't ask for any of these things. David didn't ask for Saul to become jealous over him, though there was no reason to do so in, in a sense. I mean, he was going to be the next king, but there was no reason for him to become uh, angry. David was not going to cause any sort of insurrection. There was no reason for that. And yet here, David, several years into fleeing for his life from, from, from Saul, having begged Saul, having, having pleaded with Saul that he was not going to harm Saul, that he was not going to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, having shown on several occasions that he would not do so. And yet Saul still kill, wants to kill him. What do you do with that? How does David not just recognize that God's design is in this thing because God has indeed anointed him to be the next king? But how does David thrive in it? How does David embrace it? Turn with me to Psalm 57. Psalm 57, according to its uh, superscription, is to the chief musician Altheskith, a mictum of David, which means it's a teaching psalm, when he fled from Saul in the cave. So this is during the time where he's running from Saul, where he fled from the cave in the wilderness. Notice what he writes. 
Psalm 57, verse 1. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and, shall, and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me, and into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. Selah. So David is recognizing that, that these circumstances are within the scope of God's control. And he recognizes God's design within them. And he recognizes even uh, from an intellectual level that, that, these, that the, they that dig the pit will fall themselves into it. Because David knows he's on the right path. David knows he's anointed to be the next king. David knows these things. But then notice how David can go from knowing these things to embracing the role that God has placed him in. Verse 7, my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. He's not so much considering the circumstances as, he, as his, his heart is fixed on praise. He's considering the God behind the circumstances. Awake up, verse 8, my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp, and I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations, for thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. See, it wasn't about his circumstances. His circumstances were not the, the means by which he was able to bring about some measure of delight and some measure of uh, of determination unto embracing the circumstances within which he was, it was when he stopped to consider the God behind the circumstances, the God behind the design. Look, you may be in a place and you don't understand it and you don't like it and, and you're being asked to align with God's design and to, to uh, uh, function as, as a, a rightly testimonied uh, Christian within the scope of a set of circumstances that are not your ideal. Maybe it, it's not the way God has wired you. And yet, if you're there by his design, then you can embrace it, not necessarily because all of a sudden you're going to love the circumstances, but because you love and you trust the God who has put you there. So you embrace God, and you find in that embrace the joy and the contentment and the delight to get up and to say, today's another day, not necessarily where I get to go to work or be that submissive wife or be that loving husband or be that father or be that mother and do those things and homeschool and, and uh, whatever else, but rather I get to get up today and serve the living God within the manner that he has called me to and in the enablement and power that he has given unto me to do it. One more circumstance and then I want to put a few of these things together. Paul, you all know well the life of Paul, most of you. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaks to any number of set of circumstances. Paul has spoken in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians about his suffering, about 
how he was shipwrecked and how he was stoned and how he was left for dead, about how he had suffered much for the gospel's sake. And he gave those various elements as a means by which to um, uh, give the marks of his apostleship. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks on a bit more of a personal level about something in his life. He says in verse 6, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. So Paul gives a little bit of insight here, and he says that the Lord had given him this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Many, many scholars believe it was some sort of health condition, um, potentially a problem with his eyes as we look. Uh, I believe it's in Galatians where Paul speaks of them being willing to give of their eyes to him. Maybe a, um, a side effect of one of the times that he was stoned and left for dead. Um, that uh, he w had trouble with his eyesight or whatever. We, we're not sure what the thorn in the flesh was, and the Bible does not see fit to tell us, therefore we don't need to know. But he says that he besought the Lord three times. A Hebrewism there, um, the three being, in, in our culture we have superlatives, good, better, and best. Uh, and in Hebrew they didn't have superlative language, they just repeated things, and three was the maximum superlative, like good, better, and best. Um, and so Paul earnestly besought the Lord uh, to, the, to its heightened form that this thing might depart from him. And the Lord's response, verse 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So God says, No, I've given you this circumstance, and I've given you this circumstance specifically, as Paul mentioned, uh, lest he be exalted above measure, lest he become proud in himself. Paul says, no, I've put you in this place to keep you weak so that you will rely on me. You know, maybe mother, father, husband, wife, you say, I'm not cut out for God's, for God's plan here. Well, maybe that's exactly why God put you there. Because your natural skills and your natural abilities aren't going to cut it, so you can't just rely upon yourself. You have to rely upon God. Which means if you're going to find any delight in it, it's not going to be in yourself. It's not going to be in your abilities. It's going to be only as you delight in God, lean on God, and see God working himself out through you. That's the place where you're going to find joy. That's the place where you're going to find contentment. That's the place where you're going to find delight. That is what you are going to be able to embrace is that God is using you as a pastor. I'm not cut out to be the pastor of this church. And that's okay, because that means God's not, it's not my natural talents that are going to see me into any measure of success. It is only as I submit myself to God and allow God to work himself out through me, and that's exactly where God wants me. And so I delight in him, not delight in my circumstances per se. I delight in him, and as I delight in him, then God enables me. And I am in that place of joy because I'm my, the center of my joy is the God who has placed me there and the God who is enabling me through it. That's what Paul says here. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure, he says, in infirmities and in reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. 
So Paul says, I do take pleasure in these things, but it's only to the extent that he recognizes that in his weakness, God is strong in him. It's not that he's, he's loving it as he's being persecuted or as he's in a measure of distress. It's not that that circumstance is wonderful. It's that the God behind the circumstance is wonderful and that the circumstance is bringing about God's perfection in him. Therefore, in his mind, if not in his body, these things are as they ought to be and he can take pleasure in that. He can glory in that. He can find in it that exalted place of joy. And that's the idea here. We're not directly called to embrace, uh, to, to embrace God's, to, to, to delight in every element of God's design in the place he's put us. God has designed things to work a certain way. Some of us are nicely aligned with that. Others of us, maybe not so. Most of us in some way, shape, or form are likely not so. But we all can delight in the God behind the design, the God behind the circumstances. We can all delight, you know, maybe... Maybe you've spent, spent, spent years thinking and envisioning what life might be like when you were younger and it just hasn't turned out that way. You envisioned children, no children. You envisioned a couple of children. You got more than a couple of children. You envisioned a lot of children. You only got a couple of children. You envisioned marriage in a certain way. It's not quite that way. You envisioned... Uh, your job in a certain way. It didn't turn out that way. You envisioned your house a certain way. It didn't turn out that way. Yet you know you are where God has called you. You've taken the steps God has asked of you and he's placed you there. So we embrace the God who's placed us in those circumstances. We embrace the reality that he's placed us there and, in, and is enabling us. And maybe, maybe he's placed us there explicitly because it doesn't align with my natural talents, my natural abilities, my natural inclinations, so that he can be strong through me, so that he can work out his results rather than my results. And it's then that I learn to love what God loves and my perspective begins to change and I can, as, De as, as Paul says here, take pleasure in mine infirmities and my distresses and my persecutions. I can glory in these things knowing that when I'm weak, then the Lord is strong in me. Then the Lord is working out his results in me. And I see the Lord working out his results. And then I glory in the fact that God has not put me in a situation where everything lined up exactly with my expectations. Because had he done so, I probably would not have sought unto the Lord's strength as I need to. In other words, God has weakened me on purpose that he might be strong in me. God weakened Moses, in a sense. God humbled Moses because God didn't want Moses to be front and center. God wanted to be front and center. Who am I, Moses says. God says, it doesn't matter who you are. The point of me calling you, Moses, is not because of you. I've chosen you, but it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who I am. So trust me, I will be your mouth. I made the mouth, I will be your mouth. I'll take care of it. David's running in, in, in the desert, in the wilderness of Engedi, in the forest. He's all over the place. That's not what a king is supposed to be. His followers say, let's just kill Saul and get on with it. David says, no, I'm going to embrace God's plan. Thus, I am going to embrace my exile for this time because God is the God behind the exile. And, Dave, uh, and Paul 
says, I besought the Lord thrice that this thorn in the flesh might depart from me, and it didn't depart from me. Therefore, I will glory in that which God has chosen to give me, if only that, that, that God might be strong in me. And what's interesting is that when I'm there, when I, when I embrace God and God's design, then I will be the most free to take who God made me and use it in line with what God has called me to do. So the way God made me as a minister, I may not understand exactly how the way God made me as a minister lines up directly with where God has placed me in the ministry. And yet, as I delight in the Lord and I do things His way, do you have any doubt that God is going to take the natural talents that He's given me and flesh them out exactly to His desire and use the way He made me in line with what He's called me to do? Is there any doubt of that? Is there any doubt as a mother or as a father or as a husband or as a wife, your unique sensibilities, your unique talents, your unique personality can be and will be exactly what God can and will use in your marriage, in your family, to bring about the kind of results that he's looking for? Yeah, I'm not cut out for motherhood. I'm not cut out for fatherhood. I'm not cut out for, for this. I'm not cut out for that. Well, well, maybe God wants to take your unique personality and make you a unique mother, a unique father, a unique husband, a unique wife in the exact way that he would desire. See, because you are where he wants you to be. You're aligning with his design. So you don't delight in where you find yourself. You delight in the God that has placed you there. The apostles were fishermen. Publican. And yet, God chose them to be his apostles. Saul, educated, zealous, capable. God also chose him to be an apostle. Very strong contrast between a Peter and a Paul. And yet, for each of their own circumstances, God used who they were to bring about in them what he needed. You know the way that God made you is not an accident. The way that God made you is not a mistake. You know the calling that God has placed, you, placed upon your life is not an accident. You know it is not a mistake. So the call then is to delight in the God both of the designing of you and in the designing of your calling. Delight in the God of the making and the calling and watch as then God merges the making and the calling. And all along the way, there's joy. So how are you doing today? Is there an element of God's design, a circumstance within which God has placed you, a period of your life, the nature of your, of your character, the elements of your um, externals, your health, your looks, your capabilities, your athletic abilities, your um, natural inclinations, your um, whatever it might be, and you've really struggled with it. Maybe it's some place that you've been placed. Motherhood, fatherhood, uh, not motherhood or fatherhood, uh, not, no children. Maybe it's um, the, the nature of the marriage that you're in and 
and uh, your husband or your wife and, and choices and circumstances. Maybe it's the house, maybe it's your financial circumstances, maybe it's your job, whatever it might be. Is there a place where you are and, and you've recognized God's design and yet for all that you've recognized it and you understand it and you understand God's design and you understand uh, the role that you have to play in it and all of these things, for all of that, you just aren't, you're just struggling with it. You're not happy. Uh, you're confused. You're, you're not. You don't want to be where you are. You're, you're looking for that next step. You're looking for a way to become more of what you envisioned yourself to be. You feel as though you, you, you uh, uh, are, are uh, wasting your potential, whatever it might be. May I encourage you to stop trying to delight in the circumstance or in, in, in the circumstance that you find yourself in, that God has put you in, and start trying more to delight in the God that puts you there. Stop trying to make the best of your circumstances and start trying to allow God to make the exact thing that He wants out of those circumstances. And in doing so, then start to see how God, when you are weak, He is strong, how God can use those circumstances to bring about in you exactly what He wants and anticipate it and expect it because that's the kind of God that we serve. May God help us to be this kind of Christian, to follow in this way, to have this kind of a heart. And let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people. And I ask that you would help us to delight in you. That we would not be so caught up in what we expect or desire or, or um, consider about our lives that we lose sight of your design for them. And may you be honored in the response that we have to these concepts. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.